The image I use sometimes for addiction is it's, it's dancing with a gorilla. You're not done dancing until the gorilla is done dancing. I need a dollar, 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 that's what I need. So if you're clean and sober today, it means the gorilla has let go. It doesn't mean you've outsmarted it. If the gorilla has let go, get out of the cage. If I share with you my story, would you share your dollar with me? Bad times are coming. That's Jesuit priest Father Tom Weston. And this is Sounds from the Street, where we talk about homelessness and related issues. I'm your host, Adam Campy. Addiction, be it drugs, food, or alcohol, doesn't discriminate based on age, tax bracket, or occupation. It affects people from all walks of life. And that doesn't exclude members of clergy. Though it's safe to say, one of the most vulnerable populations are people living on the margins, especially the homeless. Born in San Jose, California, Father Tom Weston was ordained as a Jesuit priest in 1978. After a long battle with his own addiction, Father Weston has been clean and sober for 40 years. In fact, he's dedicated his life to leading retreats and workshops all over the country and the world for those in recovery. In the fall of 2015, I met Father Weston after his Saturday Mass at Our Lady of Lourdes in his hometown of Oakland. Overlooking the beautiful Lake Merritt, we sat on a bench and talked about addiction, recovery, how to manage recovery, the Jesuits, and more. So you're going to hear some traffic in the background. Please forgive that. He started off our conversation with a poignant analogy about addiction. When the gorilla has his arms around you, the gorilla's in charge, even if you're taller, even if you're smarter. And um, it kills a lot of people. But the right gorilla is a thrill. It's fun. It's exciting. You laugh harder than you've ever laughed. The adrenaline rushes, and hopefully you won't die this time. So if you're clean and sober today, it means the gorilla has let go. It doesn't mean you've outsmarted it or you're stronger than it. The gorilla has let go. If the gorilla has let go, get out of the cage. And don't go back into the cage even when you hear the music, because you will. I have a friend in Las Vegas who says he doesn't want to dance with the gorilla, but every so often he wants to pet it just a little bit, you know? Mm -hmm. I get that. So I'm one of those addicts. I mean, you will meet addicts who say, oh, I haven't had the thought of a drink or a pill in 90 years. It occurs to me all the time. I'm one of those guys that thinks about it. I notice other people drinking. Not all the time, but regularly. I, I was out with some friends a few years ago, and we were at a fancy restaurant with tablecloths and silverware. And their specialty was double and triple martinis. Now that's magic. These other guys in recovery, we were gonna, we were gonna go to a meeting of some kind. They're eating their food. I'm watching the martinis being delivered like a cat watches someone eating a tuna fish sandwich. Dinner was done. I don't know what I ate or if I ate. And when we were done, I said to my pals, we have to get out of here. I, I can't stay here. No time for dessert. And they just got it. But it was uh, an obsession. And I get that every so often. So I'm that kind of an addict. So what I've learned is if I don't say that out loud, I'll feel ashamed. And if I don't say that out loud, I've got secrets. And if I'm going to be keeping secrets, I get sneaky. And when I'm starting to get sneaky, I'm, I may as well buy a six-pack. So it's, it's full disclosure. It's day at a time. It's relief. 
it, it's not willpower. It's, it's I've been given a daily reprieve from the worst of my crazy. And reprieve is a word usually only used by governors. And I keep that pretty clear in my head. So reprieve, you said, from the, from the worst of your crazy. Worst of my crazy. Self-destructive, self-obsessive, you're in my way. Worst of my crazy. Yeah. We want to go faster and have more. Unfortunately, this means you're going to be dead, but oh well, you know. Sanity, the, the second step of recovery talks about being restored to sanity. Oh, I've been in therapy a couple of times, and, and it's hard to even come up with a description of what sanity is. But it's about being a, a living human being, a real person, with thoughts and feelings and relationships and creativity and work. And, and uh, oh. with, with addiction, the end of the road in addiction is isolation and self-loathing. One of the programs refers to jails institutions and death those are the big three as where we end up and i'm one of those guys and you still identify you, you keep saying addict oh, i am so yeah. you, that that's a addict alcoholic a absolutely i'm i'm clean and sober today but i am not fixed and i am not saved and i'm not enlightened i'm one of those guys who does this a day at a time When I think about drinking or using or running away from home or robbing banks, the mental trick I've learned is I don't do it today, I can always do it tomorrow. And for some reason that's worked for 40 years. Soon as I say, oh well, I'm not doing it today, there's always tomorrow, I relax. Okay, well that works. And you'd think that I'm smart enough to see that as a ruse, but it works. I, I just find it very effective. And when someone talks to me and they say, all right, you know, I'm five years clean and sober, I hate everybody, and I'm thinking of robbing a bank and, and going to an opium den and never coming out, my response is, well, of course. <laughs> of course. What a great idea. Let's talk about this, you know. Instead of, what's wrong with you? You know, shame on you. You shouldn't have those thoughts. I have those thoughts. And there is um, someone who's been there talks to someone who is there that's the genius of 12-step stuff. So the addict talks to the addict, the bulimic to the bulimic, the compulsive overeater to the compulsive overeater. Otherwise, you're always in the thing, like we church folk can do this, you know, we who know everything disdain those who know so much less. And we can treat people very badly, uh, patronizingly, contemptuously, arrogantly, instead of saying, oh no, we're brothers under the skin. Hi, yeah, me too. Yes, I recognize you, and I'm glad to see you. And for someone who may hear this, who has no idea what a Jesuit, what that means, mm. can you give like a thumbnail summary, well, sketch well, of either what it means to be a Jesuit yeah, or yeah. what you know the, the, the tenets of being a Jesuit priest yeah, yeah, are? Well, it's, it's part of one of the communities in the Roman Catholic Church. The Benedictines have been around for 1,500 years. So they've worked out a lot of the kinks. The Franciscans and Dominicans, about a thousand years. Jesuits have been around for about 500 years. And we were teachers and educators and scientists and innovators. Um, we're priests, we're brothers. The largest group of Jesuits in the world are North Americans, Canadians, and US. We have universities here and high schools. The second largest group is uh, Indians. 
uh, lots in Africa. We're very much an international community. We're trained to think outside the box, and we're trained to ask questions, and we're trained to be flexible and adaptable. We think justice is real important, we think faith is really important, and we think a real faith does justice. So we're very involved in um, working with disadvantaged people, poor people, looking at social structures. This gets us into a lot of trouble sometimes. Pope Francis is a member of our community, and I'm a big fan of his. He really does think like a Jesuit. Let's think about this differently instead of coming up with the same three answers. Let's ask some different questions. One of the things I love about him, as he was in Argentina doing all sorts of stuff, he had good friendly relations with an imam and good friendly relations with a rabbi. And when he went to Jerusalem, they went with him. I think that's doing it right. Just to tie this back into the, the community that I'm primarily talking to is um, men and women who are homeless right. or formerly homeless. That's right. I'm curious if, based on your years of experience working with addicts, yeah. if there is a way in which you can talk about mental health and addiction in light of those who are living on the margins or living in between shelters. Well, one of my, one of my friends, a Jesuit friend, said, uh, if you're an alcoholic, in a way it's so much easier because you have a label. Heroin addict, alcoholic. People can hear the word and, and get some information about it. What if you're just a misfit? Or what if you just don't belong? Or what if convention just eludes you? You can end up very marginalized. I think there's a lot of marginalized people who have homes, but sure a lot don't. It can be isolating, it can be shaming. One of the things about alcohol and a lot of various narcotics is they really work for a while. You know, if I'm in uh, anguish or uncomfortable or I can take something and there's, there's relief. And for a while it's helpful and then it's not very helpful. I heard someone once say, alcohol did something for me long before it did something to me. And it's your friend that betrays you. It's your, your lover that throws you out. That which could give you some, some mercy, some kindness, some, some relief begins destroying your insides. And so you can end up on the street. I have several friends through Church Connection, some Jesuits, in recovery and the population they love is the homeless. The honesty there, the, the, the reality, the connection, the, the vitality, the dignity. Instead of looking at homelessness and abstraction, they know homeless people and their friends. And that's wonderful. So I think all of my fears and anxieties and resentments and bigotries multiplied when I was drinking and using. And in recovery, I've got to find the common human denominator. And I have gone to homeless shelters with groups of people in recovery, and it's kind of like with a group of people in recovery going to San Quentin, you know, and having a meeting. And what you discover is, oh my God, we have all these things in common. It takes the fear away and the isolation away. And I think the community of homeless people 
is sort of forged in desperation. And desperation can be a great gift. If I'm desperate enough, I can make changes. If I'm desperate enough, I can make friends. If I'm desperate enough, I can say hello and acknowledge the common humanity of broken people. We're all broken people. Hello. And my brokenness might be a little different than someone else's, but it's, it's that fundamental humanity that we embrace. So I am much less fearful than I was when I began my recovery. I still have lots of fears and weirdnesses, but again, daily reprieve day at a time, this is okay. At this particular parish, there are some people that come in to pray with us in the morning, and, and these are homeless people. And there was a fellow here who hung out a lot, and he died on the street. And we buried him from here. Everybody knew him. The human family, hello, uh, come on in. We don't want to build walls. We want to build bridges. And I understand a lot of the work I do precisely that, you know, building the bridges. There's a talk you gave that I think is how I was introduced to you through a good friend of mine at work. His father is an alcoholic, passed away, similar thing in, in my family. So he's, I mean, he's been going to Al-Anon meetings for as long as I've known him. And so he sent me a link to your talk at Stanford. All these stressed out Stanford geniuses, you know? Yeah. My favorite part about it is the title. We're all surrounded by crazy people, right? Even if you're alone in the room, you know, you're surrounded by crazy people. And part of what struck me, that's an immediate way to put up a wall. You see somebody on the street, there's often an assumption or like they're all bums, crazy. Dangerous. Dangerous. Or they're, they're all unstable. Yeah, Everyone's yeah, yeah. got all mental that, health issues. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And meanwhile, we're all a little bit nutty and it's just so easy for people to put up these blinders to folks who them. are living on the street. Them. You, you mentioned a few different things that people do in light of addiction and the roots of addiction. You mentioned three things that are wickedly harmful. Don't talk about things. That's right. Don't talk about real things. It's the rules of the family. I think it's from Claudia Black's book, um, It Will Never Happen to Me. Don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. Uh, we're not going to talk about the alcoholism in the family or the mental illness in the family or the suicide. Your older, oldest brother's suicide, we're never going to talk about it. We're not going to talk about the fact that, uh, you know, we, we were sexually molested by Uncle Louie. There are things we just don't talk about. In my family, we didn't talk about cancer, alcoholism, depression. We don't talk about those things. Yeah. Or, of course, sex. I mean, don't talk about that. Oh, God forbid. Don't let people know anything about that. Yeah. Yeah. Quite literally, those are the three things we didn't talk about in my family. And that, that was the moment where I was like, oh, and I went back. I rewound it. And yeah. I was like, but boy, are these peas delicious. Because the, <laughs> the one thing we did talk about. Food. Just like the immediate go-to. Great mashed potatoes, Mom. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> A new restaurant opened up on um, you yeah, know, Parkway. And da -da -da. Yeah. But, yeah, we don't talk about. So it's, it's a real interesting thing. We don't talk about them. There's shame. There's, there's uh, secrecy. There's self-loathing. Uh, but we don't talk about it. We don't, don't trust people with your feelings or your thoughts or your secrets or your vulnerabilities. Don't let people know you're vulnerable. You can't trust them. Don't air your dirty linen. And it's best if you just don't feel anything. Because if you feel, you're going to feel lousy. So shut down. I think that's one of the reasons why, in, like in a group like AA, they'll regular. you know, my name's Fred and I'm an alcoholic. Well, why do they keep repeating that? Because it's so shameful. And if you're not careful, the shame sneaks back. 
and we kind of get used to it, you know, and it becomes kind of a badge of honor, alcoholic, drug addict, jailbird, yay! Oh, we like you, you know. <laughs> and to learn how to trust some people, and you learn the whole language of feelings, and they come and go. Sad is real important for us to learn, me to learn. Uh, angry, because I was never angry. I wasn't angry, I was right, you know, which is cleaner. And, and a lot of stuff in recovery world uh, about grief, because there's a lot of losses. And culturally, we don't talk loss. So I'm very grateful to uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross for writing the first books on death and dying by Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And that's where I began learning a vocabulary of loss. And people who are homeless have lost a lot. And it can be very shaming. I was talking with a, a physician in Berkeley. She ran the methadone clinic in Berkeley. So she's not a romantic, you know, things are pretty straightforward. And she said, uh, when a heroin addict starts to get clean, he visits a lot of empty places. And I love that image. The sadness that comes up, the anger that comes up, there's a lot of empty places. And you just mentioned grief as a, as a part of recovery. Grief is a part of recovery and sorrow is useful. I guess what I needed to know is, is if you're alive, feelings come and go. I think my fear was there'd be one feeling and it would never change. But feelings come and go, and I can feel sad and it doesn't kill me. I think it took me 10, 15 years to learn that. I don't panic when I'm sad. I've had a couple of very good therapists and a couple of very good friends, and they would point things out to me like when certain subjects would come up, I'd hold my breath and change the subject. You know, which is a lovely avoidance. And I didn't uh, know I, I did that. I do that yeah, all the time. It's a perfect way of avoid Little kids can do it so well, it gets in the way when you're 68. I'm better at noticing when I'm holding breath, and I'm better at noticing when I've changed the subject. And there's a Jesuit principle about grown-ups make choices. You have to make choices and, and do changes. and. It is never a good idea to make decisions when you're upset. If you're real high or real low, this is not a good time. So Ignatius, if you have to make a decision and you're upset, there's a series of things you do to get calm first. You might make a seven-day retreat or an eight-day retreat. Get calm, get peaceful. Now, let's make some decisions. So you need some serenity to make decisions. You know, what do I hold on to? What do I let go of? What do I adapt? What do I uh, say no to? There are things I cannot change. And I heard this guy in Texas say, here are three things I cannot change. I cannot change the past. I cannot change the truth. And I cannot change you. Which is just revolutionary. I mean, I have wasted a lot of energy trying to change people. Like my parents, for example, or I just tried harder, you know. And you can't change anybody. You can't change anybody. What can I change? Yeah, three things. I can change my thinking, my behavior, and my attitudes. And that's what recovery focuses on. My thinking, my behavior, my attitudes. So you learn to try harder and do more. And you have to learn some self-care. That was Father Tom Weston, a Jesuit priest working with those in recovery since 1976. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference.
With a quick Google search, you can see some of his powerful talks online and find out where he'll lecture next. To learn more about StreetSense, the nonprofit media center dedicated to creating economic opportunities for people experiencing homelessness, go to streetsense.org. And to hear more sounds from the street, check out streetsense.org backslash audio or find us on SoundCloud or the podcast app Stitcher. Please keep the conversation going on Facebook and Twitter at StreetSenseDC. StreetSense runs an educational series of public forums, and you can catch the next one on the criminalization of homelessness, February 11th at 6.30 p.m. at the Church of the Epiphany, 1317 G Street Northwest. The sounds from the street theme song, I Need a Dollar, How to Make It in America, performed by Aloe Black from the album Good Things, used courtesy of Stone's Throw Records. The song was composed by Aloe Black with Leon Michaels, Nick Mofshon, and Jeff Dynamite. Used by permission of songs of Cobalt Music Publishing, EMI Blackwood Music Incorporated, slash Sony ATV. Excerpts of the following use courtesy of Creative Commons and found on WFMU's Free Music Archive at freemusicarchive.org. Dune by Adam Seltzer from the album Production Music. Amsterdam and Paris by Johnny Ripper from the album Songs for a Film That Doesn't Exist. And the following instrumentals, thanks to the Needle Drop Company. Avalanche, Climb, Final Reflections, and Somber by Jonathan Hadel. And Steppen Intro, Happiness Is, Elephant Parade, Going Forward, Looking Back, and Saunter by Poddington Bear. I'm Tom Weston, and you're listening to Sounds from the Street.